This is Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Associated Press reports that the Wisconsin legislature has prepared several GOP bills that would implement strict requirements for absentee voting in future elections. Although the bills are expected to pass in the legislature, they will most likely be vetoed by Evers, who has previously vetoed six Republican-backed bills that also limited absentee voting. The restrictions in the bills include limitations on ballot returns, absentee ballot requests, and required photo ID for all who apply for an absentee ballot. The final passage of the bills in the state legislature is expected on Thursday. A Republican-backed measure seeks decreased authority for local health officials in response to COVID-19 shutdowns, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The proposal would prohibit local health officers from shutting down churches or businesses for COVID-19-related reasons without approval from elected officials. The intention of this GOP measure is to delegate power and authority toward state and local elected officials and away from local agencies in the face of COVID-19 regulations and shutdowns for businesses. Under the proposed bill, a local health officer would need approval from a local committee before asking the court to implement a restriction on businesses. The bill would also prohibit local health officers from submitting any individuals to the TSA's Do Not Board list, which prevents people from, with certain contagious diseases from boarding airplanes. The proposal is now circulating for co-sponsors. The Capital Times reports that former state Supreme Court Justice and current 2020 presidential elections investigator Michael Gableman is now seeking incarceration of nine state and local officials in addition to his request to jail Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. The move comes after Gableman's attorney said that he was no longer seeking to jail the two mayors in court last month. Meanwhile, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says that he expects Gableman's investigation to issue a report by the end of the month, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The investigation was originally slated to end at the end of 2021, but a verbal agreement between Voss and Gableman extended the investigation indefinitely. The investigation has cost Wisconsin taxpayers at least $676,000 so far. Last Thursday, the Dane County Board postponed a $24 million budget amendment for a new jail to be built, putting the jail consolidation project on hold yet again. Officials originally intended to build the new seven-story jail before the pandemic, but as the price of materials and labor skyrocketed, so too did the price of a new jail. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the resolution failed to pass a three-fourths majority vote at last week's county board meeting. The board will take up the issue at their next meeting on March 3rd. Some supervisors also hinted at another new plan for the jail as a way to create a new jail while staying within their initial budget. What this new plan was, however, was not elaborated on by the supervisors. Additionally, voters may have a chance to vote on the extra $24 million in funding in a referendum in the November general election. The Capital Times reports that the construction on the Beltline is due to the addition of a flex lane, which would allow traffic on paved shoulders at peak travel times in the mornings and evenings. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation is confident in the addition between the Whitney Way exit and Interstate 3990 as flex lanes are already used in 17 other states across the country as a way to reduce travel time and alleviate traffic congestion. 
The flex lane is different from a carpool lane as it is available for use by any vehicle occupancy when open during high volume traffic. The flex lane construction has incurred delays due to weather, material shortages, and, speed, and speeding distracted drivers, yet the construction is set to be complete by summer 2021. Incoming freezing rain will make for treacherous roads tonight and all day tomorrow. City officials say 32 crews will be sent to apply salt to main streets in Madison, while 10 trucks will be dispatched to apply sand to neighborhood roads throughout the duration of the storm. Southern Wisconsin has been issued a winter weather advisory from Monday night at 5 p.m. and will end Tuesday at 6 p.m. by the Weather Service. The city encourages drivers to limit travel, drive slow, brake early, and stay alert as they face icy roadways. And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 443 confirmed cases of the virus in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the state's seven-day average to 1,135 confirmed COVID cases per day. The number of positive test results have also continued to fall, with 6.8% of tests coming back positive over the past week. There were also no reported deaths from the virus over the weekend. As COVID cases continue to fall, and as Dane County announced last week the decision to lift the in their indoor mask mandate on March 1st, some area schools are planning to make masks optional. The Capital Times reports that Stoughton, Wanakee, Middleton, and Cross Plains, and Mount Horeb have all announced that masks will be optional starting next Monday. And now, on to today's top stories. Democratic state lawmakers held a press conference earlier today to introduce a new package of bills that aim to address teacher shortages in Wisconsin. The package would raise the starting salary for teachers and provide incentives for teachers to stay in their school district. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. The eight-bill package, titled the Teaching is a Profession Package, would raise the starting wage of teachers in Wisconsin and award teachers who stay in one school district for many years. The package comes a decade after the passing of Act 10, a proposal by then-Governor Scott Walker that stripped teachers and other public employees in Wisconsin of collective bargaining rights. Act 10 also contributed to the slashing of state funding to public schools. Democratic Senator Jeff Smith of Brunswick, who helped introduce the package, says that the current teacher shortage began with the passing of Act 10. So Wisconsin's facing a problem for a number of reasons. Years of bad policies implemented a decade ago have driven many teachers out of this profession. The constant disparaging attacks on public education have only added to burnout among teachers and widespread shortages. This is an issue affecting school districts all over the state, one that I've heard directly from rural superintendents in western Wisconsin where I serve. When it comes down to it, those most impacted by the teacher shortage are our students. Peggy Wirtz Olson is an English teacher and president of the Wisconsin Education Association Council, or WEAC, an advocacy group that pushes for funding in public schools. She says that as the pandemic continues to affect Wisconsin schools, the package is needed now more than ever. Educators are at a breaking point. Students need so much, but there are not enough of us to meet their needs. And impossible demands are driving great educators out of the profession. Given the stress and exhaustion that educators are experiencing, there is no time to waste in finding solutions. 
Educators have brought forward our solutions to the educator shortage, and this legislation shows that some of our lawmakers are listening. According to the Wisconsin Policy Forum, the amount of students graduating with teaching degrees in Wisconsin has dropped almost 13 percent over the past decade. The first bill would raise the starting salary for public teachers to match that of state legislators. Another bill in the package would ensure that all school district employees would receive the same health care benefits as state lawmakers. Democratic Senator LaTanya Johnson of Milwaukee says that teachers do just as much work as lawmakers in Wisconsin and deserve to be compensated as such. We know that between 2011 and 2021, the average teacher's fringe benefits dropped by 13%. A double-digit cut in benefits like health care insurance is a slap in the face when Republican politicians were clamoring for teachers to get back to work into their classrooms before vaccinations were even given to everybody. And may I add that that is something that our state legislature didn't even do themselves. Senator Chris Larson of Milwaukee says the average starting salary for a public school teacher in Wisconsin is around $39,000 a year. The average legislator salary in Wisconsin is over $50,000 a year. Additionally, the package also contains a bill to provide a $7,000 bonus to any teacher who stays within the same school district for more than five years. Teachers would also be eligible for an additional bonus every five years after that. Senator Larson says that this is to help teachers dedicate themselves to their students and to make lifelong connections with their students. There are some school districts where the average teacher has been there for under six years and then you have others at the high end where the average teacher has been there for 18 years Um, and unfortunately across the board that number is declining. So being able to have teachers in classrooms continuously means that they are going to be dedicated to those kids long term. The bill package would also raise the wage school districts pay their student teachers to at least $15 an hour. Student teachers do not currently get paid as it is considered a part of their school curriculum. While there has not been any estimate for how much these bills would cost, the Democratic lawmakers say the burden would not fall on the individual school districts and that funding for the bills could be made by cutting back private school vouchers or by utilizing the state's budget surplus. Other bills in the package include ensuring that teachers are given paid preparation time every day, mandate an educator be present on school boards, and create a student loan forgiveness program for educators who graduate from the UW system. Michael Jones is the president of the Madison Teachers Incorporated, Madison's Teachers Union. He says that he is happy for the bill, but feels that some school district employees may be left out. I think not just in terms of our teachers, but one of the things that we need to really also talk about is our hourly staff, our custodians, our teaching assistants, our secretarial staff, service, all the folks that really help, that really make a a school building function properly because it's not just, it's not just uplifting one group. We really got to be talking about making sure we're lifting everyone up. But yeah, anything that, that can help empower and help people stay in the profession and feel like they're being valued, 
money being one of those factors, I think is helpful. Meanwhile, state Republicans are working on their own education bills, creating what they call a parent bill of rights. The Capital Times reported last week that the Republican package contained a bill that would allow parents to sue a school or district under certain circumstances. Under the bill, parents would have the authority to determine the names and pronouns used for a child at school and what instructional material may be taught. Senator Larson says that his bill package is not a response to the Republicans' bill package and says that he believes the bill package will be able to receive bipartisan support. The bill package is currently circulating for co-sponsorship. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last Friday, the Dane County Sheriff's Office released more information about the shooting of Quadron Wilson. In the press release, the Sheriff's Office stated that they found no evidence that Wilson had a weapon during the shooting and named the two Department of Criminal Investigations agents who shot Wilson five times in the back. They were identified as Mark Wagner and Nathan Pesky. Earlier today, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi called out the Sheriff's Office demanding more transparency in the investigation and continued to ask why 21 law enforcement officers were needed in the arrest. Parisi says that he wants the Sheriff's Office to provide regular updates on the investigation to the public. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Executive Parisi about the press release. Shortly after recording the interview, the Dane County Sheriff's Office put out their own press release, stating that information has been withheld by the Sheriff's Office to protect the integrity of the investigation. They say that the investigation is in compliance with Wisconsin law on officer-involved shootings. I'm on the line with Dane County Executive Joe Parisi to talk about the statement he released earlier today calling for more transparency on the shooting of Quadron Wilson by two Department of Criminal Investigation agents earlier this month. Executive Parisi, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thanks for having me. So just to sort of start things off, why did you publish your statement earlier today? Well, there's a lot of concern throughout the community and concerns that I have myself. Um, And that is that up to this point, um, we've been left to kind of piece together our own narrative um, if if we're not a member of law enforcement. Um, From the information that's been relayed by the family, by hospital reports, by, um, you know, an end of the week press release last week. Um, But we don't have one central source of information. We don't have any one individual or group of individuals, you know, coming before the, the, the media 
Um, you know, and, and, and providing transparency and, you know, answering questions. We understand there might be some questions that can't be answered now, but we don't have a presence in the community right now of someone to, you know, give us all that reassurance um, that, that, that this is being handled, you know, in a transparent manner. So, you know, we need someone from law enforcement to step forward and serve as a central clearinghouse for information about this case. So the investigation is being handled by the Dane County Sheriff's Office. And I want to ask, have you been able to speak with anyone from the Sheriff's Office? Have they told you why they aren't releasing any more information? No, I don't think it's, um, you know, necessarily proper for me to, you know, speak to them about an ongoing investigation. So, you know, I thought the best thing for me to do was to voice my concerns, voice concerns of people in the community um, to, you know, all law enforcement that was involved in in, in this episode, but certainly the sheriff's office, too, as the the lead investigator, um, that they need to, it would be very helpful if they would provide regular in-person updates and be available to answer questions. So you've served as the Dane County Executive for over a decade now. And have you ever Mm -hmm. seen a response like this, or maybe I should say a lack of response from the Dane County Sheriff's Office in regards to or any uh, law enforcement agency in regards to an event like this? Yeah, this has been different than most events that that, that I've witnessed. You know, every, every event is different and every response is a little different. But certainly when something like this happens, what one would hope and expect to see would be a presence of someone from law enforcement who's in charge, and certainly someone who's in charge of the investigation to be providing, you know, periodic updates, giving people an opportunity to ask and have questions answered. And again, you know, just to be there as a reassuring presence um, for the community. Um, but, you know, we just, we haven't seen that. Um, what, you know, what we've seen is, you know, a press release here or having to rely, you know, on, on reports that the family has heard, you know, through talking to their son or through a hospital report. Um, and, you know, this was a, this was a major law enforcement action, but we just haven't had a law enforcement presence available to explain to us what happened and what's going on with the investigation. So the sheriff's office are saying that they aren't releasing the information because of their ongoing investigation into the matter. But as the community is looking for even basic answers about the shooting, they have stayed quiet and have just released little tidbits of information at a time. So I want to ask you, do you believe that they legitimately cannot release information due to this investigation? Or do you believe that that response is almost a bit of a cop-out for that? Well, I think it's important that, you know, they they be given the space to conduct the investigation. We all want a thorough investigation. We all want to know the facts. But, for example, you know, the information that was released by the sheriff's office last week, you know, came at the end of the day on Friday in the form of a press release when most people were on their way home for the evening. And, you know, if I think most of us understand that there are certain things that can't be discussed until the investigation is complete. But what would be much more helpful than the manner in which the information that is coming out has come out would be for 
a physical presence of law enforcement leadership to say, to, to appear before the news media and say, here's what we have, here are the names, here's the evidence we can talk about so far, and there are still things we can't talk about because they're still under investigation. I think people understand that and people want that. We don't, we don't want the wrong information coming out. But we, what we do need is a reassuring presence from law enforcement to stand in front of the community and at least tell them, we're looking into this, this is what we can tell you, this is what we can't tell you right now, but hope to be able to soon. Right now, the community isn't, isn't getting that from anyone. We're having to piece together the narrative ourselves from various reports from various people. And that's, that, that doesn't leave you know, a, a good impression of, of transparency in this investigation, which in something like this is really important. So now I want to ask, currently, as far as I am aware, to my knowledge, Quantron Wilson is still being held in the Dane County Jail while his family is calling for him to be moved to a hospital to receive care for his injuries. And Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett has been a pretty big advocate for the jail consolidation project, specifically pointing out that the current jail does not have medical beds. Do you see any sort of connection between the push for a new jail and the decision to keep Wilson in the Dane County Jail and not move him to a hospital? No, I don't think so. I think I think the two are quite separate issues because if someone needs to be in the hospital, they need to be in the hospital. It doesn't matter if we have a new jail or an old jail. Um, you know, that's that that should be a medical decision. Um, so I, I see the two as you know quite quite different issues. Executive Parisi, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, express with me here today? Yeah, I just think, you know, to sort of recap, I think it would be very helpful for the community um, if someone from in, in leadership in law enforcement, I think it would be good if it's the sheriff because his agency is the lead investigative agency, at least, you know, that's, that's our assumption. Um, for, for, for someone to provide regular in-person updates, share what they can, let us know what they can't, and give the news media an opportunity to at least ask a few questions. I think that would be very reassuring for the public. Um, it would keep you know everyone's eyes on what's going on and make sure that people have information as it becomes available. I've been speaking with Dane County Executive Joe Parisi about Quadrin Wilson and his call for more transparency in the shooting of Quadrin Wilson. Executive Parisi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. All right. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout has all of this week's city and county meetings. Bridging the Gap looks at Olympic controversies. And two brand new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
time is now 6.33 and you are listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. What's happening this week in local government? Let's find out from Brenda Conkle with ForwardLookout.com and WORT's Dylan Brogan. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Happening right now uh, in Dane County, uh, a virtual meeting, uh, as all these meetings are, unless we note otherwise. It's the Personnel and Finance Committee, which started at 530. What are they up to? Um, They got a whole bunch of routine items. Um, Some of the things that might be a little bit of interest, they're creating work work groups for the Dane County Tree Board. I just like to mention the tree board as often as possible because, you know, who doesn't love the trees? Um, They also have some other things like um, authorizing some more money for um, the Sheriff's Department, appointing Elizabeth Douglas as the deputy medical examiner, um, and a salary adjustment for the sheriff and the clerk of courts. Uh, There's more on the blog if you want to check it out, um, but it's, it's kind of a lot of routine items. And uh, at 5.15 Tuesday, we got the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. And uh, will they be discussing the jail at all? Doesn't look like um, it. They actually don't have yeah. it on there, no. Um, some repelling gear for the sheriff's office, um, a vacant communicator position that they're going to uh, make into a supervisor position. And then they're discussing Resolution 556, which is from 2014, mm-hmm. which was some of the original discussions about um what we needed to do for um reducing the jail population and so they're going back all the way to look at the 2014 resolution um in regard to what they could be do doing for the jail and continuing now with tuesday we have what what do you want to do public works or zoning and land Oh, I'd say public works. All right. Public Works and Transportation Committee meets at 530 tomorrow, and uh, they will be talking about the jail consolidation project. That's right. That's why I picked them. (laughs) So, yeah, they also have a bunch of um, routine items, some of them to do with the the airport and concessions there, Um, and then uh, the lease for the solar array between um, Dane County and Wisconsin Power and Light, and then a whole bunch of contract change orders, and then the jail consolidation project update. So, um, again, lots of routine items, but the jail is probably the most interesting one. And we'll skip down on to Thursday, 530. It's the Health and Human Needs Committee. Um, They'll be talking about homeless issues, right? Yeah, they just have one item on their agenda. It says housing and homelessness update with data trends. Um, There was no link to that material. um, So it'll be interesting to see what that presentation is all about. Let's talk about the city of Madison now, going back to today. Um, we have, well, there was quite a few meetings today. Wow. Um, and, but the Plan Commission, they're meeting right now, and uh, they started about 5.30, also virtual. So tell us about that commission. Sure. Um, they have, um, they're getting the housing forward update, which is the two-year plan that the city has for housing um, and looking at you know affordable housing and the missing middle type housing projects that they're looking for. Um, they do have the annual report from the planning division. And then there's a few projects on University Avenue, one on the 2200 block and one on the 3000 block. And then they will also be um, just doing some other routine items at the end of that agenda. And Tuesday, the Equal Opportunities Commission will have uh, a virtual hearing and it 
It's a, a complaint, I, I believe, and it's versus uh, employer in town, Epic Systems. Now, why is this with the, the city's Equal Opportunities Commission? Do we know that? Oh, you are very astute. Um, yeah. Actually, what happened when I looked at the, the actual form that was filled, it looks like they're going to be referring this to the state to, for the state to go ahead and uh, look at this particular matter. The city of Madison has an agreement with the state where they um, refer any matters that would be better before the state. Um, and so they're re recommending to refer this one. Okay. And uh, let's see. Also, we have the a course. It's uh, every other Tuesday. So we have the Common Council Executive Committee meeting at 4.30 on Tuesday. And that will be followed by um, the full, the full uh, All 20 Alders meeting at 6.30. So what's the city council up to? Um, so the Common Council Executive Committee, they're going to be talking about the staff hiring process for their chief of, uh, of staff. They're also going to be getting three presentations. One's going to be on the elections-related litigation and investigations around um, elections. And then the League of Wisconsin Municipalities had their annual conference, and they're going to be hearing about that. And then also the 2022 Renewable mm -hmm. Energy Summit. And then when the Common Council, when yeah. they meet at 630, um, they have um, the that Ramish property on the north side of Madison is before the council, and it is going to take a supermajority vote. I believe it's a three-quarters vote for well, that Well, you got to tell us about one. that. What's that project about? It's a it's a development project out uh, by the airport, um, and there is some concern that it's not a great place to be building housing once the F-35s come into town. It's been a little bit controversial. Um, it did pass the, the plan commission, but it is going to take a three-quarters vote of the council. To, to approve it or to stop it? To approve it. Oh, okay. Why does it need two-thirds? I'm sorry, Brenda, for putting you on the spot here. but That's okay. I'm pretty sure that there was a... Um, petition that was filed okay um usually what happens is somebody appeals it and when that petition is filed then it requires a uh, more of a vote for the council to also pass it good to know i didn't know about that rule that's a good rule to follow up on hmm. yeah um usually it takes a certain percentage of the neighbors um okay. who are property owners or a certain percentage of the addresses around it some of the other things on their agenda uh they're going to be staying virtual through the end of may now Sure. Uh, it keeps getting extended. Um, and then they have the annual uh, report from the Board of Public Works. Um, a lot of the, the construction around town, particularly to having to do with roads and water infrastructure and things like that. Um, and then they are also going to be looking at adopting the Greater East Town Plan. Um, and then they're going to be looking at restarting the Shadywood Neighborhood Development Plan, as well as the Hawthorne Truex Area Neighborhood Plan. So lots of planning going on. They'll also be getting a report on the chronic nuisance ordinance and how that's being used by the Madison Police Department. That's the ordinance that um, often ends up in people getting evicted from their homes and then getting ready for the Mifflin Street Block Party and banning glass in that area for uh -huh. the weekend, the first weekend of May. 5 p.m., the Vending Oversight Committee will, they have an important meeting tomorrow. Uh, they will be deciding where the food carts go. So you're in the biz. This is an important meeting at 5 o'clock. Yep, the vending site map yes. that they approve every year. They're also, uh, the Vending Oversight Committee, when they get done with that, they'll also be looking at the streetery project and approving or not approving that. And that's where they, uh, you, you know, restaurants can move on to the, the terraces for yeah. extra seating and, 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 and parking spots. And in some cases, spots. even out into the street, depending, yeah, the yeah. parking spots, yeah. 
Wasn't Mayor Soglin kind of against you letting restaurants use like public space like that? I guess COVID is another thing COVID has changed. I was going to say, yeah, this is definitely one of those things that got in there during COVID and and uh, now they're trying to extend it permanently. And if you'd like more information about, uh, we just touched on a few of the meetings happening this week. There are more and for uh, a convenient place to go see what's happening with uh, various committees and, uh, and links to agenda items, head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you so much for putting that together this week. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. You too. Today is the 50th anniversary of the start of the trial of Philip Berrigan and the rest of the Harrisburg Seven, religious anti-war activists accused of conspiring to kidnap then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to force a withdrawal from Vietnam. Feature contributor Harry Richardson says it's one of the most bizarre cases of the anti-war period during the 1960s. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong Today, February 21st, is the 50th anniversary of the start of the trial of the Harrisburg Seven. They were religious anti-war activists charged with conspiracy to kidnap Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and blow up steam tunnels in Washington, D.C. It was one of the more bizarre trials from the 60s anti-war years. The activists won an acquittal. Their leader was Philip Berrigan, and the group also included Elizabeth McAllister, Reverend Neil McLaughlin, Reverend Joseph Wenderuth, Ekbal Ahmad, Anthony Skoblik, and Mary Kane Skoblik. Former Attorney General Ramsey Clark was their chief counsel. Berrigan had participated in actions to burn draft cards as part of the Baltimore Four in 1967 and the Catonsville Nine in 1968, and was in hiding in May 1970 when he was trapped by 100 FBI agents in the broom closet of the rectory of the Church of the St. Gregory the Great on Manhattan's Upper West Side. He was arrested and brought to Lewisburg Federal Prison to begin serving his nine-year sentences. While in prison, Berrigan's trial for the Harrisburg Seven conspiracy began. This was an alleged plan to kidnap Henry Kissinger. In the trial, the government's chief witness was an FBI informant, former convict Boyd Douglas Jr. Douglas was described by the New York Times as a sad, unstable youth who was reported to have made two attempts at suicide. He was serving his second term for writing fraudulent checks when he met Philip Berrigan, Douglas befriended Philip and was soon running contraband messages for him. Douglas was on a work release program at the nearby Bucknell University Library. Douglas used his Berrigan connection to convince some women students that he was in prison for anti-war activities. Then he set up a mail drop and persuaded the students to transcribe letters intended for Berrigan into his school notebooks, which he said weren't checked by the guards. These students were later called unwillingly to serve as government witnesses. The government denies charges that Douglas was an FBI informant when he met Berrigan. Douglas's original assignment may have been to learn the whereabouts of Phil's brother, Dan. Former associate warden Robert Hendricks said under oath, 
that Douglas had barely started his contraband operation when he was caught. Thus, it appears that Douglas consented to become an FBI informer to keep his work-release lifestyle, which included an apartment in town, girlfriends, whiskey, and a mysterious source of money. Douglas could continue as courier for the Berrigan Group, but would deliver copies of the messages to the FBI. One of the transcribed letters was one in which Sister Elizabeth McAllister allegedly proposed abducting someone like Kissinger. Douglas claimed he was too busy to transcribe the letters himself and that the letters were too dangerous to smuggle in. It turned out he gave the original letters to the FBI. At trial, Douglas's former girlfriends testified that he was an informer, an agent provocateur, and a catalyst in the alleged conspiracy. This fit with a women student's testimony that Douglas was busy arranging meetings among the group to come to Lewisburg for demos and discussions. Yet Douglas also told one of the defendants, one of the Harrisburg Seven not in prison, that he was a demolition expert. Douglas also gave the peacenik a military manual supplied to him by the FBI. The government spent $2 million on the trial. During the investigation, the government used unauthorized and illegal wiretapping. Clark used the then-new technique of scientific jury selection by using demographic data. He also kept Berrigan and the other defendants off the witness stand, figuring admission that they had burned draft cards would taint the jury's favorable view of the defendants. After 60 hours, the jury remained hung, and the defendants were freed. Father Philip Berrigan served his time and went on to do more protests against the war and nuclear weapons. He spent 11 years in prison in all. He was released from prison for his last plowshares action against a nuclear missile destroyer in 1998. He passed on from cancer on December 6, 2002. His funeral may have been the largest gathering of ex-cons in the country. Over 600 people packed into St. Peter Claver Catholic Church in Baltimore. Philip's spouse, Elizabeth McAllister, a former nun, delivered the gospel reading about the resurrection of Lazarus. Father Dan Berrigan delivered the homily. Brendan Walsh, one of the Kentonsville Nine, gave the eulogy. Philip Berrigan would have been proud. And that is our story for today. For the Passes and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you are listening to the live local news on WORT. The 16-day Winter Olympics in Beijing ended yesterday. This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen explores the high-profile case of Kamala Vilieva, the Russian figure skater who was the center of a doping scandal at this winter's Olympics. Trigger warning. This feature discusses cases of abuse that might be sensitive to some listeners. 
The 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics has come to a close. Aside from the excitement of watching professional athletes from all over the world compete against each other, the games also came with quite a lot of controversies. The most notable one was the Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva's doping scandal. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring Gen Z culture. Fifteen-year-old Camilla Valieva became the center of controversy when the Olympics Committee allowed her to continue competing in the Games despite having a positive test result for a banned hard drug. Many athletes were understandably upset with the committee's decision, as many others who have had a positive drug test before were banned from competing. Shakari Richardson, a U.S. sprinter who was banned from the Olympics after having a positive test result for marijuana, which was not a performance enhancement drug, called out the committee for their difference in treatment and asked that Valieva be given the same treatment. Many other athletes have come out to state their opposition to the committee's decision, but they also show sympathy towards 15-year-old Valieva for being at the center of the scandal. After the controversy blew up, Valieva can be seen with fear in her eyes and shaking slightly as she entered the ring for the final competition. With the weight of winning gold on her shoulders and the public's disapproval of her competing, Valieva fell over twice and stumbled in her turn landings, finishing fourth ultimately and leaving the rink in tears. Her fellow teammates, Anna Sherbakova and Alexandra Trusova, placed first and second respectively, but exhibited no excitement afterward. Trusova even had a mental breakdown after exiting the rink and repeatedly cried that she hated skating after learning that she didn't place first. Many were prompted to look into the Russian figure skating team after seeing that other girls exhibited behaviors that may indicate a response to abuse by their coaches, especially Valieva's coach, Ateri Tabertsi. BBC's Sonia Oxley reported that Tabertsi's award-winning athletes are known to be, quote, disposable, with many of them retiring before they even turn 18 and being replaced by new blood. Washington Post reported on the notorious training methods that Tuberzi used to produce award-winning figure skaters. She is known to train female ice skaters to perform quadruple jumps, a skill that is extremely difficult for female skaters and requires them to be lightweight and skinny in order to complete the jump. Her athletes are subjected to extreme dieting, which at times include restricting water intake as they could risk gaining weight. They are also praised when they express that they have no desire to eat. One of her former students, Yulia Lipnitskaya, was the youngest Russian athlete to win gold at the Olympics at the age of 15. However, she retired from ice skating three years later and was checked into a treatment center for anorexia. With her history of abuse towards her athletes, many weren't surprised when she immediately changed attitudes towards Valieva after the positive drug test results came out, and consequently the harsh comments given to Valieva after her failed performance. Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympics Committee, even witnessed Tuberzi's treatment of Valieva and described it as chilling. There is also the very sad story about uh, Camila Valieva. But I, I must say I was very, very disturbed yesterday when I watched the competition on, on TV. When I afterwards saw how she was received by her closest entourage with uh, such a, what appeared to be a tremendous coldness, you, 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 uh, it was chilling uh, to, 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 see, to see this rather than uh, giving her comfort. 
rather than to, to try to, to help her. Abuse of younger athletes is more common than we think. And the issue is slowly coming to light. Last year, Larry Nasser, team doctor of Team USA's gymnastics, was found to be sexually assaulting multiple girls on the team. The New York Times reported that the girls in Nasser's case, quote, described themselves as robots who did as they were told, even if it was trying skills that might hurt them or limiting their food and even water intake. They were also too scared to question authority, even when being abused. End quote. Among the victims is Simone Biles, one of the nation's best gymnasts. She has since come out to testify against Nasser and speak up against the adults who abused their powers to take advantage of younger athletes. The training of professional athletes shouldn't come at the cost of a child's physical and emotional health. As Valieva's case brings more attention to the abuse of younger athletes, change will hopefully soon follow. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new outstanding movies on the small screen, both nominated for multiple Oscars. Nightmare Alley is a great film noir, directed by Guillermo del Toro, and Flea is a moving Dutch animated feature about an Afghanistan refugee family. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. What is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. That was a clip from the trailer for the great new film noir, Nightmare Alley, directed by Guillermo del Toro. He co-wrote the script with film historian Kim Morgan. They reportedly made some changes from the 1946 novel by William Lindsey Graham. They were influenced by the 1947 film, The Final Statement of Our Antihero, Stan Carlyle, played here by Bradley Cooper in his best role ever, is the same in both. This is a gripping movie that sucks you in from the first scene to the last. It deserves its several Oscar nominations of Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, and Best Costume. The opening scene draws you in. A man is struggling with a heavy object wrapped in a carpet or blanket in a large room in a run-down house. Somehow, maybe it's the lighting, maybe it's the music, we get the uneasy feeling that there might be a body inside it. He drops it to the floor and lights a match, calmly walking out of the house as it is engulfed in flame. He doesn't look back as he walks away, but we do. It's a bleak, flat, treeless countryside in the middle of nowhere. Then, after a long bus ride, he enters a small town. He walks off the bus into a two-bed carnival sideshow. The carny is in full swing, asking only 25 cents to see a mysterious wild man. He walks away after watching a desperate half-naked man in the bottom of the pit biting off a live chicken head. But then Stan is offered a dollar to help take everything down. There's a storm coming. He takes up the job and is offered work by the head man, Clem Hotley, Willem Dafoe, who says, Are you looking for work on the down low? No one will judge you here. He soon learns all the tricks of the trade. He is befriended by the resident clairvoyant, Zena, Tony Collette, and her spouse, partner, Pete, David Strathern. Pete takes a liking to Stan and shows him how to persuade people you are a spiritual medium. Stan sees a bright future for this con and leaves the show shortly after Pete's untimely end with the woman he's been courting for months, Molly. Rooney Mara. Then it's two years later, and Stan and Molly have made it big in Chicago. Then Stan meets wealthy Ezra Grindle, 
Richard Jenkins, who wants a real clairvoyant. This pits Stan against Dr. Lilith Riddier, a psychiatrist friend of Grindel's, Kate Blanchett, and we are soon wondering who is playing who as our story unfolds to its grim conclusion. This is one of the best films I've seen in months, an exceptional cast with great direction and marvelous cinematography by Dan Lowstein. It deserves its Oscar nominations. I highly recommend it. Now for a serious animated movie, also nominated for several Oscars. Hvad betyder ordet hjem for dig? Hjem er noget, som er trygt. That was a clip from the trailer for Flea, directed by Jonas Pauer Rasmussen. The animated documentary is about his friend, here called Amin, and his family's dangerous journey from Afghanistan. No, not the current group fleeing that country, but part of the large exodus from Afghanistan when the U.S.-backed Muslim fundamentalist Mujahideen took power in the early 90s. Some of the details have been changed to protect Amin and his family. The animation adds another layer of anonymity, but the voice is really him. Amin is now a successful academic in a stable relationship in Denmark, but he is clearly shadowed by his past, which unfolds here mostly through animation with a few live-action scenes and TV footage. Amin tells his story for the first time, for reasons we understand as the story unfolds. Amin brings forth a touching picture of his childhood in Kabul with his siblings and the casual affection of his mother. Amin is by his own description different. He feels attracted to men from a young age. This is a problem in Afghanistan. Then the Mujahideen take over and his soldier father is taken away and has disappeared after a few months. The rest of the family is forced to flee to Russia. But Russia, post-Soviet Union, is a scary, corrupt, crime-filled land where they fall prey to the local police. The rest of the gripping story explains what happened to Amin and his family. A wonderfully done, sad yet hopeful story that has sudden relevance with the current diaspora of Afghan refugees. The film deserves its Oscar nominations for Best Animated Film, Best Documentary, and Best International Film. Both films are available on Hulu. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.